Welcome to the Practice Podcast, conversations probing the nature of practice. I'm your host, Dave Firon. Well, this is a, a little longer conversation than some, and it must be because we, we, Dave, actually, my son Dave, takes us into some aspects of thought that relates to practice that still, as I'm reflecting on what we just went through, dazzles me. I think there's so much more going on than meets the eye. <laughs> uh, even as I'm speaking this through my microphone and seeing my reflection on the screen, uh, I'm, I'm changing. I'm growing. I'm glowing. <laughs> but this is, uh, this is a useful conversation that I will now get you to so you can agree with me by the end, I'm sure. Dave and Dad, another conversation about social inaction. Well, almost from the beginning of this now 171 episode podcast series on practice as a way of being, we've woven into all the episodes and then featured in some of the episodes a conversation that my son Dave and I have about the enacted aspect of practice that we can see when we're looking closely at conversation itself between two or sometimes more people, things happen within uh, those moments of time. And since practice itself occurs moment by moment, it's a nice match. So I asked Dave if he would prepare a few more thoughts. Uh, it won't be a lecture, but he will be teaching the old man uh, more about how uh, this whole uh, system of uh, an action works. As I think if I get to learn it, everyone else will too. So, Dave, thank you for offering this and uh, get me started. What what do I should I be thinking about first? Well, um, this is uh, kind of um. I'm, making our discussions more of a series um, th that are following a few points um, of, of theoretical contributors to, to what we're putting out there as, as a social and action um, perspective on practice and talking in, in, in social organization. And um, in one of the earlier ones, I touched briefly on some of the neurobiology behind practice. And um, one of the reasons I know anything about that at all is, is just having studied it a bit in, in college, uh, I took, in addition to studying social psychology, um, I took as many courses as, as I could squeeze in with on um, neurophysiology and neuroscience. Um, this was in the late eighties. And, um, and then for my senior, um, I had a senior project where I wrote a paper combining uh, George Herbert Mead's uh, pragmatist philosopher, his model of social psychology and the act, which we talked about in an earlier podcast and uh, neuroscience um, of the time. And um, where I focus was a um, neuro neuroscientist who was, um, I didn't realize at the time was a bit of an outlier um, in the field, but very innovative, um, mostly because he 
came up with a very different approach to uh, thinking and studying the brain, um, mm -hmm. which was just barely emerging at that time, but was still fairly revolutionary in terms of earlier approaches to thinking of the brain and even thinking of consciousness. And uh, who I'm talking about is is uh, Harold Edelman. Harold Edelman, uh, just brief background, he actually received um, a PhD, uh, sorry, a Nobel Prize um, fairly early in life in, in, uh, I believe in medicine for his studies on immunology. Hmm. And, uh, he, uh, discovered, um, he and his colleagues discovered that the, uh, immune system worked uh, in a different model than, than had been thought of for the prior in 50 years or so where, the, the prior notion was that an antibody, an antibody, when it encounters um, what's called an antigen or basically an attacker like a virus, the thought was that the like an antibody, like a white blood cell, would just kind of reshape itself in in kind of an instructive fashion by the qualities of of that virus in order to um, deal with some new new threat um, hmm. that, that the body hadn't encountered before. But the problem was it, it didn't quite work out that um, not only that that antibodies are able to adapt that quickly, but but even that it's uh, capable of handling novelty in the way that that it ought to. And what he found was that um, really what happens are, is the body already has lots and lots of variation in in types of antibodies and their capacity to encounter new things. And so when a new virus comes in, um, lots of different types of antibodies bump up against it and attack it. But the ones that actually succeed are the ones that not only are amplified uh, in their action, but kind of kind of signal back to the other antibodies telling them to either go away or dissolve or do other things. So so <laughs> it's um, it's almost That's a community, incredible. Yeah, it's almost a community approach to. Um, the immune system, which, mm -hmm. which has since been established as as the way it works, so um, by and large, and um, it, in our last discussion, um, we had talked about another Nobel Prize winner, um, Ilya Prigogine, yep, um, and his approach to systems dynamics, um, which we can already see kind of echoing in Edelman's work, where uh, for Prigogine systems living living systems in particular um have uh dynamic arrangements in which you, you start thinking of system activity as what are the special features of systems that are far from equilibrium um which mm -hmm. means they're able to import energy in a regular sense and export entropy or things that would damage it and adjust and adjust to damaging effects. So, so the human immune system is of course, an example of, of this or any animal's immune system in which, um, this action of antibodies would be a part. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and it reflects, uh, what Prigogine would say was, um, an adjustment to perturbations, which would be the attacking virus. Um, but in more of a, an interaction of lots of parts, in which um, you get what he calls a, a perturbation point where with that um, encountering of the attack that works against the virus, 
you get this sudden reorganization, a very quick reorganization of all the components for what now works as the self-sustaining um, protection against this virus well, by, by the system. So, um, you know, it's, it's stunning. <laughs> yeah. So, so already we're seeing, uh, you know, we could put, put, make some connections between a systems dynamics and Edelman and, and Prigogine, which I, I, I haven't looked too deeply into all of Edelman's writings, but I, I don't, they were more or less contemporary in developing the theories. I don't know that they you know, read each other or that he read Prigogine, but I think uh, Edelman was certainly aware of some of the new thinking in chaos theory and systems dynamics and such that came along because he also like like Prigogin where where Prigogin got a Nobel Prize in chemistry but then went on to very big theories uh, about um, all sorts of systems and life and everything else. Uh, Edelman after he got his Nobel Prize in in uh, working on immunology turned to neuroscience which was there you go. You know, just developing in those days, but really getting lots more good evidence and new tools for for understanding how the brain's constructed, and um, came up with some very interesting ideas on how um, neurons work, how the brain might be organized, and and how um, even consciousness could emerge for. Um, animals in general animals that have you know more advanced features like a cortex and um even had some speculations around how, how what's special about human uh consciousness and and intelligence um hmm. and when i wrote this my senior's paper um i i started making those connections into social psychology so hmm. um so we i could try to outline a bit of that now because it does tie into what you know eventually led to um what i was talking about for for social action i think we can make some interesting connections where we've been talking about talk and social interaction kind of as its own domain pro properly thought of as what people do together yeah people interact with each other not knowing anything about each other's brains no, but in thing. most cases, we assume others have a brain, unless maybe yep. you're talking to a politician or something. But uh -oh. apart from <laughs> apart from that, um, you know, you, you can you can you can describe plenty about the social world without having to think too much about brains. But every now and then, it's nice to think, well, how how do the brains do this? And so I thought maybe we would summarize some interesting points that drawing from from Edelman and yeah. and some. <laughs> And not too deeply into the brain because I really haven't studied studied the neurophysiology since 1990. But I, there's, I think there's still a lot of still in more and more uh, work to understand the brain from every angle. Uh, and uh, uh, but you you were there when it was um, not the the most uh, th thought about thing. There was a lot of assumptions about the brain. But I'm I'm hearing already something what you just said, and uh, well, I'd like to hear more, of course. But um, when we are talking with, like we are now with each other, we we assume that it's all happening. You know, I think a thought; it comes out in word, in in a sound, words translated, all the very basic things. But how important it is to have 
alertness, to have uh, some ability to quickly delve into meaning a little faster than you would if you were reading or, or, or just talking to yourself. Because A, it would be in service to you for me to be expressive of what I'm thinking right now, and B, you'd give me some feedback. But both our brains are, uh, I guess, with the, if we did the, the thing they do that light shows where the brain's lighting up, would they be showing a little brighter because we are having this conversation about the brain? I mean, well, the brain lighting up um, is, is kind of the fits the theme of where there has been a lot of advancement in, in mm -hmm. neurophysiology and, and, and studies of how the brain works. Um, it, it, so it a broader contextual point is 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 it, what is that what what is the energy that's putting put into it and, and what parts of the brain are doing what thing in another and and and, and also and, and there's a lot of new to ex, to an extent you know one could go into a long lecture on to what are the different parts of the brain and how do they relate but really getting down to the dynamics is something that that a lot of um uh even neuroscientists don't don't really understand quite as much and what it was what are the implications of the way um the brain is arranged and, and um I'd, I'd like to tie it to some of the ideas we talked about with um brigagene and what are the characteristics of any any living system what's special about the brain and neurons is that they evolutionarily they they solve some problems that you could compare to like with a with a virus like a virus tries to reproduce just by making lots of viruses and smacking into animals and and whether they get killed off or not um if enough reproduce then then the virus continues but we're talking but but um you know and cells operate that way in some cases but but with once once uh neurons evolved then you had something that could adjust much faster yeah, um, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, and so successfully that bodies start giving it a lot of energy, especially uh, humans and Homo sapiens. There's a almost majority of our energy is consumed by the brain to some degree, yeah, yeah. Um, keeping it so, turning along. Which again is that notion of keeping things far from equilibrium. Mm -hmm. And when something is far from equilibrium, it has that nimble nature to be able to quickly reorganize. So like the, the neurons are made up of dendrites and uh, axons and connection and, um, and are able to connect together. And, and you know how many neuronal connections there are in the brain? They're, they keep having up the number. So far, they're up to 250 trillion connections in the, in the human <laughs> cortex. And you know who has more connections than that? Babies. Uh, Babies. Oh, babies. We shed connections over. We shed connections. And this was a very uh, <coughs> interesting thing that, that um, Edelman actually uh, worked on and, and coined a phrase that he called, um, he called neurodarwinism because it, it really reflected um, a sense, this, this almost a survival of the fittest notion that he also saw in working with immunology. Um, because what, what you see with uh, babies, babies are, are born um, 
with brains that that really don't do a whole lot, but they just have amazing potential of, of I don't even know what the count is, but you know, every almost <laughs> all the neurons by the time you're born are connected to each other. Um, but what happens is as it encounter as babies encounter the world, um, the neurons find um, what persistent interactions successfully do things mm -hmm. um, meet basically perturbations mm -hmm. um, ostensibly from the environment, but also from the internal connections within the brain, mm -hmm. you know, the, the connections of, of visual perception with touch mm -hmm. and, and sound and making all those associations and um, what the process of um, neurodarwinism uh, is, is kind of pointing to uh, not just neurons, but neuronal groups. And that's very important. The, the, the neuron in itself doesn't matter so much, but how a, a, any given set of neurons are connected together in a real dynamic sense. And we can even think of the, the neuronal group as having this self-organizing you know, operational closure in the sense that we were talking about with Prigogine, because mm -hmm. the, the neuronal group, as it fires dynamically, is in a state of either existing, continuing to exist because of the relevance of its, of its um, environment and its ability to absorb change and still have its parts together, or those, the, the perturbations um, are, are no longer, are, are kind of destructive of that, that particular set of connections. Um, and, and those connections, some of them die back and others are, are strengthened by, by, you know, kind of a signal feedback by interactions that work better. So you get this combination of certain neuronal groups growing and others kind of winnowing back. And, and meanwhile, the, neur the neurons themselves stay alive for the most part. They just start shooting the little tendrils in different ways. Finding new places to be. Does, yeah. does a neuron group have an unidentifiable purpose in, uh, in, like in, in my golfing neuron group? <laughs> well, I mean, they, they do each kind of self-defined purpose to, to an extent. Now, most of it isn't going to be as, I mean, if you ever, if you found any one neural group, they would be in a way meaningless. They don't really, yeah. um, you don't know why they're a group, but well, somehow they don't, they don't know either, but they are a group. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they create their own relevance and connectivity, but really it's kind of these connections and connections and connections of neuronal groups where you start getting up to the point where there's something recognizable as like a persistent behavior. Uh -huh. um, and that's where things like association really come in. So if you look at something like how, how does our visual perception work? Um, I think I heard there's like maybe as many as like 70, like seven, zero different aspects of vision and parts of the brain and, and, and pulling all of it together into a visual image. And then, you know, they can deconstruct it to some extent where you'll see, you know, particular parts of the brain and even the um, uh, retina responding to vertical lines and, and horizontal lines, others just for horizontal lines and various ways of doing color and all of it kind of assembling and assembling. But What's interesting is how do we really get to the point of 
where we're conscious of. Uh That was just what my (laughs) head was starting to say. Yeah. Where does it matter? It matters for any animal when, you know, you hear a snapping twig. Yeah. And is it a threat or not? And, Mm -hmm. and, and you find that even that is a layered experience. So, so even for, for us, if we were out, out uh, in the jungle, we hear a snapping twig. First we run, then we look behind us and see what it is. (laughs) Yeah. So part of our brain is just dealing with running and, and and to an extent we can say, well, maybe that's not quite as conscious as till we actually look and then see what it is and and so so that sense of starting with the priorities um you know be killed or fight or flight and then mm-hmm. building up into well what is it about the world that that i need to know has, has just happened yeah um so uh, yeah yeah so so you know a couple of of uh other aspects in these neuronal groups is that this sense of self-organization is this by being sustained and, and surviving or adjusting or, or maybe regrouping with other parts, you get this self, not self relationship um, within the neural group itself. But then you also have these neural groups, neuronal groups for which are acting as a whole to other neuronal groups. Um, so that it's not just, uh, there's not just a cause and effect. One neural group fires, the other group is a stimulus to the other neural groups response it's more like a resonance or you can almost think of it as a as a conversation in a way between yeah between all these associated parts um and uh in which um i think in a in perhaps more than a metaphorical sense one neuronal group can become the observer to another and 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 act on the basis of global properties of parts of the brain and responding to that so there's this you know the sense of independence independent semi-independent regions adjusting each other with a sort of resonance rather than than a cause and effect and um one of the um another concept that edelman put forth was looking at how interconnected the brain is and it's it's especially the neocortex is is deeply deeply interconnected there are parts of the brain like like the thalamus, which is about the size of your knuckle, but it has um, axonal connections to almost every part of the brain. And, and, and even within a particular layer of the cortex is like, I think about six layers and the thalamus is kind of embeds itself like, like a layer of, of roots um, into just throughout the whole you know, cortex. And, and, one of the things that this interaction had, this these interacting layers add is what he calls reentrance, um, hmm. and I think the various other terms have been used for a similar thing. But basically, the notion is this: you know, and traditionally the brain was thought of as sensory motor. So you know, you sense something, you make a decision, you move the muscles. But yeah. this, but with all this interconnectivity, there's this layer of Reentrance was basically two ways. If you look at how the nerves fire, it's not sensory. It's not sensory to motor, motor to the sensory. It's both simultaneously. Wow. Even with the same, you know, neuronal group. Wow. So what he talked about was this um, constant interaction was um, gave kind of a unit of analysis that was 
wasn't sensory or motor, but sensory motor relatedness mm-hmm. um, as as properties of of these neuronal clusters, um, and, and that it, with with various degrees of order from very specific to more general um, integrating uh, functions, all kind of working together. Wow. So it, it, it this is always about result. I mean, is that all of this going on uh, always producing some kind of internal as well as externally visible result? Um, uh, or just a little bit of that is result and the rest of it is just constant organizing and reorganizing? Um, I guess we could think of both um it, but in a way it's like the, the behaviors the surface phenomena of amazing complexity nah. underneath the surface there you go but all of it may be having these similar principles of self-organizing mm-hmm. uh interaction among parts uh, heavily uh, with heavy association and also kind of this repeated um self not self um uh, dynamic and observer to the observed dynamic um and and all this becoming the general pr- principles behind what you know traditionally you'll see in the brain is that those parts of the reg- regions of the neocortex for for sight and sound and body sense and others for motor for example um you know very fine tuned um groups of neurons for moving the fingers around are very heavily represented in the brain, almost like you had an image of a giant hand mm. over part of the hand over part of that brain. But, but um, you know, other parts of the, like the toes don't really dedicate that much real estate basically no, to, 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 to be able to twiddle them around. Um, unlike our, you know, our, our chimp cousins. So, um, so you know, and there's other regions of the brain that that do particular things, like the hippocampus is important for memory, and and the cerebellum. I forget exactly what that is. It's motor coordination, but it actually has as many neurons as the as the neocortex. It is smaller. It's yeah. quite a thing. And then and then the limbic system, um, which is very important for emotions and feelings, which um, gives another element uh, to not just with the limbic system, but with with the, any neuronal group group dynamics, is that there's there's kind of a value. There's potentially a value uh, element to um, the sensory motor connections. Um, mm-hmm. There's there's a sense of relevance. Like, mm-hmm. is this neuronal group going to work for the persist for the situations that it's that's regularly encountering? Mm-hmm. Um, or is does, does does this group need to be destroyed and rearranged? And the more persistence, the more of that feedback, the more you get much more permanent structures that might last last most of your life. But in other cases, you have ones that that will can rearrange themselves. So something mm-hmm. like you know being able to deal with letters on a page requires some real persistence around being able to distinguish the letters. Um, but if you had to learn a, a, a different language, like like Chinese, and oh. worked and worked at the ideography, then eventually, you know, you'd, you'd have more persistent neural groups to 
to um, understand those those as as words. So that's um, that is a lot so far. Yeah, yeah that's a lot so far. Um, and, and then you know other you know there's other whole aspects of it like neurochemistry, like these global chemicals that that have kind of general constraints over large regions of the brain, like like dopamine, um, as as influencing um, uh, pleasure, but also your your um, reward seeking behavior, things of that sort. Um, yeah, I'll pause there because where we're going to go next is what's the nature of consciousness. Yep. <laughs> and let me toss out no, no and one quick takeaway is a comment you made a moment ago, which was behavior is a, a is on the surface. We observe behavior, we we do behavior, which is one of the aspects of the nature of practice, as well as talk and, and social interaction. But going on under the hood. <laughs> You know, hate to take something this elegant and attribute it to an automobile engine, but it, it's helpful for us who are trying to understand successful practice as well as effective communication to realize there's a whole hell of a lot more that our brain in its nervous system is accomplishing moment by moment. And the so what of that is healthy brain i guess for one thing <laughs> yeah 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 i mean yeah. i mean we always we always are you know we're, we we kind of pay attention to other people's moods or how they may be that day but but it's hard to remember that literally what you ate for breakfast is going to get, uh, give you certain uh, outcomes for the day then then um that's right then uh, then otherwise and, or, and how much uh, hydration i remember seeing yeah, yeah. Uh, your elderly grandmother, you know, in a nursing home, as bright as a, as anyone we know, but she became dehydrated and she started to get, you know, disoriented and and then they rehydrated her and she perked right up again. So I, I think yeah. there's, there's some very things that we all experience about keeping the brain healthy in order to work at peak efficiency in any moment of time or to adapt from a snapping twig and knowing, you know, it's time to run all the things that we need. Right. Come back to what you're telling us about tonight, Dave. So yeah. Go ahead and tell us a little bit more. Well, um, you know, uh, about Ed the consciousness. Yeah. And Edelman, this was in, uh, you know, the, the eight, throughout the eighties for the most part, working, working on, on his, ideas and um studies and he eventually um started a uh um a research institute if you have to name in, in la jolla in la jolla california and did some very interesting work um um including um bringing a team that that built these special robots that <laughs> that could um very differently wired than than even a lot of today's um you know kind of advanced neural net robots it, in in their ability to to learn and and figure things out and interact in ways that that um, um, probably are in some of the <laughs> have snuck their way into some some of the robotics of current time, but but there was but them was pretty novel. But um, I guess yeah. But basically, the 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 notion though is, you know, it has also been kind of a taboo until even just last 
few decades of even thinking too much about consciousness, neuroscience, really thinking about consciousness, because it is a, is called, you know, philosophers call it the hard problem and it's for a good reason. Yeah. But um, Edelman's work and all, even what we've been talking about with Prigogine and, and the social inaction notions and, and even Mead, George Herbert Mead uh, in, the, in the turn of the century, we're coming up with, with notions that I think could work for models of consciousness and, and um, Edelman looked at, at made a distinction between animal and, and human consciousness, um, hum, human consciousness being a, a special application of, of, of similar di- biology and dynamics to a degree. Um, but, but I think we can think about more precisely. So for most, uh, for animals that, especially animals that, I don't know where we start with insects or whatever, but let's let's just <laughs> stick with mammals for 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 now. Mm-hmm. Um, you can look at how we. I think we could think of um, animals that have uh, mammals that have an, uh, uh, some neocortex as having enough mechanisms to be conscious, and we call it primary consciousness. Mm-hmm. And an interesting aspect of that, as I, I had mentioned um the these neuronal groups as being uh, a process of of relating especially relating sensory and motor meaning you know be moving the muscles mm-hmm. plus value plus kind of a value or relevance element mm-hmm. and so he he defined um consciousness as this weaving together of of sensory motor streams into a unified perceptual whole um, so, and we, we could think of, you know, this, just our raw perception of the world, but also the sense that we have what philosophers call qualia, that the world has color and, and sensation and, and, uh, coherence as, as objects that, um, more or less we share with, with our cats and dogs and other animals, they see the world and it's different in a lot of ways, but at least the process of being this level of experienced awareness may may be shared and what it is is uh in, in that definition of consciousness the sensory motor is a very in, sensory motor relate, relatedness is a is a key thing you don't always hear you kind of often will think of sensation you know what we what we what we sense with our visual system all tied together and coherent sense is and then becoming aware of that is consciousness no, no he's we, we're adding motor to it we're adding the 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 grasping of mm. as though the grasping of the distant object the the glass of water becomes part of the consciousness of that water the mm. action towards it becomes and not just the mo- motion towards it but the relevance to what one's doing at the moment becomes part of what would what would be tied together as the experience or consciousness of the action towards that glass of water mm-hmm this can go on with lots and lots of different systems so that, you know, in a way our primary consciousness, our experience of the world is much more of a hodgepodge patchwork than we even realize, because I think part of that assembling the world is actually giving ourselves the belief that the world is more coherent than it actually is. (laughs) If you were, you know, maybe a very experienced meditator, you could start kind of paying very close attention to all the different parts of the 
the world that that are put together or, or another good example is if, if you were to have a dream and even a real vivid dream next time you like wake up from a dream kind of think about what what it is you saw because at the moment it seems oh i, I was really dreaming yeah. about um driving in a car in my car yeah. it's oh yeah it seemed really if, you I know feel the motion yeah it seemed real vivid i had yeah i could touch it but then if you like if you just immediately kind of think about what was it i was actually seeing you'll kind of realize that i'm just i just really saw little bits and pieces i saw like the wheel but you know i couldn't really see any distinctly out the window and yeah. I, and like oh there wasn't a back seat there was just this this big blob or something like that you'll, you'll <laughs> because when in dreaming the the mind doesn't have that constant reinforcement of actually having a physical world to to, to bounce back from so back so you from. get but it's an essential part of of actually making uh doing this adjustment of neuronal groups and, and creating things like memories that which would be basically the potential for re reinvoking those particular associations, all that works mm -hmm. done for all, you know, all, all mammals, lots of other animals too. So, um, but you know, you, you, so the sense of primary consciousness, um, we could think of our dogs and, and cats of, of being very aware of us in this sense, but there's a difference in what, humans uh um were able to develop in in other um maybe other other primates or or apes to a degree in 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 what the social um persistent social interactions and the necessity for living within social groups gave as challenges for the brains to basically evolve around and that's what he calls uh, secondary um consciousness this is essentially awareness of awareness um and it works through um i think more or less what we've been talking about all along is social inaction mm -hmm. i i really think that's how the um the this discursive consciousness that we experience in ourselves um grew and evolved um initially from just having to do things like um, uh, use uh, vocal gestures in which other other animals would respond. We would respond in the same way that other animals would to the sounds we make ourselves. And this becomes a, a self-referencing pattern that could then, you know, develop into later into what was more of a, of a language. Mm -hmm. And lots and lots of things go into language and even and, and very dedicated parts of the brain start to develop mostly within the association areas of the cortex to make all this work. Like this area is called Broca's area and I, I believe it's more of a of the uh, motor side of things and Wernicke's area, which is more around the comprehension side, but it's not these areas by themselves. It's in this dense interaction that re-entrance notion the connectivity and equally dense in those areas are connections to the limbic system and we talked in other podcasts about how important shame and pride and social That's emotions right. are because right. they provide a, a level of of um of uh constraint mm -hmm. and that's purely social that's really about keeping the social going and working keeping the relatedness going to the bond yeah that we yeah the social bond but but even you know the trust that when i use a word 
that mm-hmm. you are going to also understand it in the way I think you ought to, and because it's the way I understand it. And you know, course of conversation, customs, actions, all of that. Yeah. All underneath of that are are some very um, distinctly um, evolved and, and highly uh, parts of the brain parts of the brain that require lots of energy, mm-hmm. lots of resources. We have big giant heads that, you know, you know the leopards know to to go for our heads first. So we really had to, um, and and our babies are pretty helpless for for years. So all of that effort was put into into keeping um, our big brains that could work well within within communities and and tribes. Yeah. Um, and now into the social world and, and it keeps evolving of course because there wasn't initially there wasn't reading not now that much reading. not that yeah. many perturbations of a of yeah. the kind that we're experiencing now yeah i even heard of of uh, even in like the development of reading um there was a time some some medieval um uh, priest who i think uh, was claimed to be a saint was was given sainthood later he, one of the big, big attractions was he was able to read without moving his lips and people would gather <laughs> around and say, how can he do that? He's not speaking out loud. And you know, he seems to comprehend what he's reading. It's like, but now any kid could do this by the time. It's a sainthood out of that. Five. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, yeah. 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 So, so, you know, it's really, and now we're evolving to, to, or devolving to communicate by text rather than well there you go or who knows or or math you know i i don't think i could do my multiplication tables anymore because i've had a calculator watch starting in the, in i remember the you had you had a casio watch and yeah, all, all the and, kids in the third grade would look at you and say yeah hey, and what's, will, what's the number for tw- the answer for 12 you know? right and then, and then uh you know and then we don't need to you know to remember so many facts because we can google them and oh um, i know and yeah. see the one point of this whole conversation is to the point of devolution consciousness is always there right it's always there but mm-hmm. it's being we we or it is being in, in taking us uh, away from things that we've normalized and to things that are abnormal but they're either attractive or escape or whatever the reason may be for example the attraction of reading and there's plenty of chat out there in uh, the social literature about how you know people won't read (laughs) more than a page or two and of course since i've just finished uh on practice as a way of being with quite a few pages uh, that's discouraging um on the one hand on the other hand as a quick plug on this the way it works out as a digital book it it the conjectures on practice that peter had and i amplified are each contained as a block so you can click on 31 and there's a page or two so at least it's going to the point of the trend which is Oh, just give me something I can read in yeah. two or three pages. Indexing <laughs> the relevant points. And and and, and ignoring yeah. the fact there are another couple of hundred pages there. Um, so, yeah. And, yeah. And there might be a crop progress in thought. God yeah. forbid. Um, but yeah, I mean, so, so you know, we've, we looked under the hood a bit. Um, I think we could take it back to what, what um, Peter Rail was talking about with practice to some degree. Uh, um, so we can think of practice uh, 
Um, I mean, the idea of practice, uh, well, maybe you could, well, why don't you summarize the idea of practice and I'll, I'll try to convert it into what we just talked about. Well, it's very close because the, what he called the fundamental way of thinking that he used to begin to develop these propositions or conjectures about practice was, he said, practice is the conscious choice to pursue certain results over an uncertain amount of time, uh, fairly consistently, he said. And as the changing circumstances occur, one has to change whatever they're doing at that moment to adjust to to those changes. But the key is, it's your you're very conscious that you are pursuing results. And if you were not as keen about whatever those results may be, for example, writing a dissertation, which you did, uh, then, you know, you, your mind could go anywhere, right? I mean, there's a, a million other things going on, as you sure, just said sure. in this conversation. So it's about concentrating your consciousness on achieving results in the midst of change, constant change. Yeah, and I think what we've seen with these ideas is that what what kind of a battle that is to, yeah. to some degree. Uh, one aspect being to actually make it discursive, something you would talk to, to yourself about, mm-hmm. which would be a manifestation of the second order consciousness in which you you are aware because you are talking, you're using verb. You know the language that you talk to others to talk to yourself, so that mm-hmm. so there's there's that level. But then beyond that, um, there's the awareness. There's it, not just that; it's really awareness that's been bubbling up from lots of things that are at least primary consciousness in these little moments. Like you just notice something mm-hmm. about you know your 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 golf swing, let's say, because mm-hmm. you just done the golf swing as you reflect back on it, memory really doesn't last that long, but you don't know. You reflect, you reflect back, re, kind of reproduce the action and notice something that, that you would then verbalize, Oh, I've been lifting my head at that moment. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, or, or noticing something in the workplace, um, you know, after you got done with a meeting, reflecting back, you know, reproducing, redoing some of these sensory processes reinvoking them and then verbalizing some thoughts about them but it's really um starting with that verbalized moment but then getting it back into the part point where the neuronal groups <laughs> and connections that support it they're going to push back to some degree mm-hmm. until you've offered maybe something ideally something that puts all the components together in a new way that that gives some value and relevance to sustaining this this path, so that your your um, neuronal connections start to rewire themselves. And it takes yeah. practice, as in <laughs> repetition, yeah. at that point. Yeah, but it seems also an interesting connection to what you said that it that you're craving novelty at the same time. Yeah, those neuron groups and so forth are saying, "Okay, yeah, this is nice," you know. Plinka, 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 but then you're saying there's a pushback uh, going on in there, and it's craving something else 
Yeah. Uh, either a, to break it up so it can reorganize into another grouping or something about novelty. Yeah. I mean, I, well, I that think we, that maybe that's what keeps us at the higher order of all these different animals is that we, we crave novelty. It is, or it's, it's, it's a necessary part of, of the dynamics. It's not going back to Prigogine that too much of the same is, is a form of entropy and, right. and things start to die off. And, you know, there were parts, you know, like doing math. If I never do math problems, then I lose my ability to do it. Um, the, the, um, uh, yeah. So, so in the, the similar efforts to sustaining things that worked before are often are also put for looking for novelty. This is probably as much resource of the brain as being ready for the new as there is for persistent of, of yeah. work before. So, yeah. and that's how, how animals survive in, a, in an uncertain world. Right. And, and we have a, basically a symbolic world of words and thoughts and culture and norms and things of that and, sort. And, that and, and certain relationships, a lot, yeah, of, relationships. A, lot, a lot of relationships. Yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah. Very, very cool. I have a great deal more respect for all my innards, <laughs> as we'd say in Maine, my innards. And I don't just mean the piping. I mean, the incredible work of, uh, of, so many cells, but particularly the neurons. Mm -hmm. uh, it's some next conversation, Dave, uh, since we're, we're capping off this thing about con of consciousness, we could go back to another big chunk of the work, uh, which is learning itself. And, uh, you know, it's like leadership. It's been studied by millions and published by millions, but I still am intrigued now even more so because there's a learning, what we call learning should be better described in what we've discussed tonight. So yeah, we could really put consciousness as, as part of it in a more explicit way and in ways that, that are counterintuitive, like, like Edelman says, consciousness is not, does not have causality and without getting too much into it, it that aligns with the Prigogine and self organization too. It's not instructive. We we it's like an it's like uh, something that bobs up to the surface, hmm. but it's really this this these self organizing and it, it is and so what you're conscious of, especially if we if we're verbally conscious of it, we contribute something new for the rest of our brain to deal with, but we're not instructing the brain per se. We're just giving it a new perturbation to deal with in, ah. a, in this global conversational yeah. multi-leveled leveled way. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> so, we, so there's always idea that we're, when we're learning, we're making ourselves learn something new. We're, we're working ourselves to learn something new. Perhaps it's not anywhere near as much in our control as we think. Yeah. On the other hand, uh, if we put ourselves in a context of where novelty and uh, other uh, uh, inducements make that happen within us, mm -hmm. bubbling up, then we have the sense of learning, don't we? Yeah, and there's relevance, and we have to kind of and the value that you yeah, mentioned. value and motivation is like keeping up that relevance, even though mm -hmm. it starts getting known and dull and not as interesting anymore. We have to kind of force <laughs> ourselves or trick ourselves or or assume that maybe we do actually know it and we can move on to something else. 
Um, so, oh, man. Well, this has been uh, terrific as usual. And uh, we'll, we're going to do more of this very soon. But this one will be out uh, by early next week. And then we'll, we'll uh, continue to work from there. But, folks, what we've been doing with Dave and me from the very beginning is related to a possible coincidence that when I was uh, choosing a name for uh, our, our uh, domain name for our website, uh, we, had, we owned two. One was called Inside Knowledge, and the other was called Inaction Research. And I chose Inaction Research, even though I knew the book was going to be based a lot on learning. And now I am much more happy than I could have been back then that this was a good choice because we are looking at um, emergence of practice. We're looking at the emergence of social uh, organization, and we're looking at it now in a very pinpointed way uh, that uh, Dave's work has helped us do tonight. So thanks an awful lot, Dave. And if someone wants to fund us, we can call ourselves an institute. <laughs> I, I'm ready. <laughs> I have a very a very empty checkbook. I'd love, but since, <laughs> clearly, it, it. I would guess, in, in summary, that most of the institutes that exist obviously started with one or two people mm -hmm. who were trying to gel some ideas and trying to move their understanding of something. In this case, social. Uh, properties uh, in a new way. And you use the word at the beginning uh, of, of Edelman being an outlier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You see, most of the uh, human experiences that I've seen around the, the coalition mm -hmm. of institutes, societies, and, others, and other such things come from people who are not in the so-called mainstream of thought. Right. And uh, maybe even get pushed out or, or, or they don't uh, allowed initially to come in, the tension of which, the creative tension of which makes them much more earnest in the practice of creating new thought. Right. Uh, and, you know, so thank goodness that about uh, a biologist in Edelman and a chemist in Prigogine uh, could have stayed pretty much in their comfy little uh, knowledge homes. Instead, they were even more curious about how all these things could help us better understand human behavior. And out they came was these cool ideas. Right. Yeah. And a librarian like me can pull it all together and not worry about academic co colleagues because I don't have any. So no, maybe I'm completely wrong, but whatever, we'll put it together. And uh, <laughs> well, it that, and, and that's why we can be um, what we are. We're free. We're free to, to express our ideas. Uh, but I think one of the things that, um, by nature, you as a librarian, and particularly one now is in the curation business of, of, uh, of data, is you, you do need to be uh, omni-circumference. I'm not an omniscient. I need, but I need to know a little bit about everything. Yeah, exactly. Or, or where to find it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and thank God for that role. I mean, that's a practice in itself that we're, we're, te we're terrifically reliant on. And Google and, and, uh, and those kind of devices only get you what, you know, has been, mm -hmm. uh, what can be found on the, on the web. But uh, sitting down 
with a problem to be solved and knowing that you'd like to bring in some other thought mm -hmm. with a good referring librarian, right? What you would say is, oh, I, I have a systematic way of identifying what you're looking for. But first, let me tell you that it reminds me of mm -hmm. <laughs> something I gave someone else the other day who came back and said, this was very useful. Right. So you see that whole human aspect of, of what library uh, science allows us to do is mm -hmm. still important. So yeah. folks, go down and hug your local librarian. No, no, don't do that. <laughs> we still have we still have to maintain so, certain social distance. Uh, but, you know, nod to the librarian and thank them. And I thank you tonight, Dave. Yeah, this was fun. And then next time, uh, maybe we'll contrast this ultra materialist version of con consciousness with with uh, discussions of the, the idealists who are still out there and, and thinking that perhaps we would all live in a simulated universe. We may uh, and and <laughs> work I, on that I, notion, <laughs> but I, I but I want I do I do want to have go that way in part because what it, what was once called wild fantasy or voodoo science or all that stuff, a lot of that we discovered later on gave our brains, our big old brains, uh, room to play, room to doubt, room to do things necessary to come back to something or out to something more solid. So sure. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, there's a huge influx of, of shows on Netflix and, and others around magic. Now, I don't know if mm -hmm. you've noticed, I've been watching one right now called magicians, but there's dozens yeah. of shows about magic. And, and so it maybe is co coterminous with the fact that we've had some very unmagical times in the last right. few years and still are and this craving for uh, uh, enjoyment re regarding how our brains can take us and our actions can take us to places that we otherwise couldn't go yeah right. let's 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 do that one all right we'll, do that well, one. we'll see if that's what shows up next so stay tuned folks all right thanks again Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Practice Podcast, where we discuss practice with a capital P. If you'd like to hear more, listen in on Spotify, Automatic, and Apple Podcasts, or go to inactionresearch.com slash podcast dash page. And if you'd like to learn more about social inaction and the nature of practice, head over to actionresearch.com for more information. Thank you for supporting this show. We look forward to hearing from you soon. Oh, and one more thing. How could I forget? The book On Practice as a Way of Being is available now in digital form, something that would be new, like podcasting to many of us, and it's a, a great way of learning more and more about what this podcast presented when Peter Vale and I originated it several years ago. So please come to www.mylibrary, one word, dot world slash practice, and you'll see what I mean. Thank you. <laughs>